In October last year, there was an article written by Andy Gregory that appeared in The Independent, which posed the question, how many female world leaders are there? Women's parliamentary presence has more than doubled since 1995. The world's first elected female leader is generally considered to be Siramevo Bandaranaika, who came to power in Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka, in 1960. Throughout the decade, just two other women assumed power. That is Indira Gandhi and Golda Meir in India and Israel, respectively. Since then, there have been a total of just over 90 elected female leaders around the world. Currently, 21 women sit at the head of state of government, government, governments sorry, in 193 countries around the world. And this is according to the Council of Foreign Relations, a US-based think tank. Of course, last week, we all witnessed another female leader when we saw Kamala Harris take the oath as Vice President of the United States of America, the first black Asian American to serve in such a position. Now, while it remains unclear whether the pandemic will have any long-term effect on gender equality in politics, women's share of power is finally on the sharpward upward trajectory as the author writes. However, we know that there were a number of spiritually gifted women in the Old and the New Testament who displayed a tremendous amount of courage, vision, and leadership. If you haven't read John MacArthur's book, 12 Extraordinary Women, then I would highly recommend it. Today we learn about a character who solely relied on God who lived out the Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. She put all her faith and her trust in God. Now we will be examining the life of Deborah, a prophetess, a wife, a warrior, and a poet. She is the only female judge in this book, and her story dates back as far as 1200 BC. Her life and witness has a message for both men and women, but there is little doubt that she stands as an encouragement to all women who are seeking to make an impact for God. And we will see Deborah demonstrate such faith, energy, and confidence in her walk with the Lord. She never neglected or compromised her call from God. In fact, she felt so strongly about Israel's predicament that she fired up those around her, namely Barak, to lead Israel to victory and to freedom. So we see her as the warrior servant, and that's the title of my message today. So we are continuing our sermon series on Judges. So let me remind you where we are in the book of Judges. Last week, Brother Pedro uh, taught us about Ehud, the left-handed man who was able to conceal his sword in his right thigh. 
We heard the story in graphic detail where we learned of the gruesome death of King Eglon. Eon pretended to have a secret message for the king. And while he was alone with King Eglon, he killed him before any of the king's servants realized what had happened. And the graphic details of this account show the harsh nature of Israel at the time and also show the human nature of the heroes of this book. Now remember, Pastor Gareth spoke to us about chapter 1 in Judges, which begins with the tribes of Israel in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some of the key Canaanite towns, there were still a few Canaanites living in those areas. They failed to drive them out of their land as God commanded them to do. And the whole point of driving them out was to avoid being corrupted by their way of life, particularly worshipping the false gods and the idols. Now remember, God called Israel to be a holy people. And of course, going through the book of Judges, we know this did not happen. The Israelites moved into the territories and adopted the Canaanites' way of life, their culture and their religious practices. So we see Israel move in a downward spiral, and the process becomes a vicious cycle. The Israelites became like the Canaanites, and they would sin against God. So God would allow the Canaanites to conquer them and oppress them. Eventually, Israel would see the error of their ways and repent of their sin. So God would then have mercy on them and be faithful to them and would raise a leader, a judge, uh, and they would defeat the enemy and bring about a time of peace. But once again, when the judge died, the process would repeat and Israel would be left without a leader and would sin again and would spiral downward into chaos and decay. So Israel was in desperate need of a godly king, a king who would lead them in doing what was right in the Lord's eyes, rather than a leader who did what was right in their own eyes, as many of the judges did. But we know God did send us a king. He sent us the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, the one and only son, his one and only son, who will reign in eternity when he returns to earth. So in today's narrative, we are introduced to a number of characters, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Naturally, as with any story, we have a villain and a hero. And in this case, we have a heroine. I want to briefly introduce these characters to you so that you can keep an eye out on them when we read the passage. So firstly, we see Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his commander-in-chief, uh, of the army, Sisera. They were the oppressors of Israel. Then we meet Deborah and Barak, who go into battle to defend Israel and defeat the enemy. We also meet Jehal, the wife of Heber, a key knight who plays a pivotal role in this narrative. So let us go ahead and read chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 of Judges together. You can read it in your Bibles or follow on the screen. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. 
and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagohim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came out, came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jab Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now notice verse 11, which seems completely out of context, but it comes into play later on. Verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hoab, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananum, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hegohim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagohim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Continuing verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jehel, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, 
for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he, were, he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and lay there, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So let us delve into the text and let us examine it in a bit more detail. So my first point this morning is the apostasy of Israel, which we see in verses 1 to 3. So we see Israel backsliding from God again. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Israel had rest for 80 years, which should have rooted them in their religion, established them in their relationship with God. But the opposite occurred. Because of their long rest and peace, they experienced, they forgot about God and all His mercies. And there lies a lesson for us. Isn't it funny when we experience wonderful times, relaxation and peace, we tend to forget about God. When the money is rolling in, when friends and fellowship is on the rise, when everyone looks at you and thinks, I wish I was like so-and-so. We have really short memories and forget about all the things God has done for us, all his blessings upon our lives. But we also see that Ehud is dead. He was a leader who kept a close eye on Israel. He restrained and punished them if they looked towards idolatry, keeping them close to God's service. But he was now gone, and Israel rebelled and sinned against God. And there was no one to keep a close check on them. And now because Israel forsook God, he forsook them. And they became easy prey for their enemies. Their, na their nation had lost their strength and their power. They literally threw themselves out of God's protection. He sold them into the hand of Jabin. An enemy oppressed them for 20 years. Now Jabin reigned in Hazor, a city that was destroyed and burnt down by Joshua. But it appears that the city was rebuilt over time and managed to regain their strength and their power, especially over Israel. And what made this oppression worse was that these Canaanites had been formally conquered and subdued by Israel. Matthew Henry's commentary puts it like this. To be oppressed by those whom their fathers had conquered and whom they themselves had foolishly spared, 
could not but be very grievous. But as we know, according to this narrative, it is not the end for Israel. It is but the beginning of a new dawn again. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And when you hit rock bottom, there is only one way to look, and that is up. And this is what the Israelites did. God, being who he is, had mercy upon them and decides to help them. And he sends them a leader. So this leads to my second point, the salvation of Israel, which is verses 4 to 10. So when Israel cries out to the Lord, he sends them a judge to deliver them. He sends them Deborah. It was a name common to women with the eastern people and was derived from the Hebrew name Devarol, which means be. One commentator comments and says this about her name, sagacity, which effectively means foresight and discernment, and great usefulness to public, sweetness of temper to her friends, and sharpness to her enemies. So we are introduced to Deborah in verses 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So during this time period, a woman judged Israel. It was a sign of God's omnipotency, for she was a prophetess. She was one of five such women that we encounter in the Old Testament. We see Miriam in the book of Exodus. We see Hilda in the book of Kings, Isaiah's wife in the book of Isaiah. And then we come across Noadiah, who was a false prophetess in the book of Nehemiah. Now, raising a woman was contrary to God's ordinary dealings. But John MacArthur tells us that God can use women mightily for civil religious, and many other tasks. So firstly, we see that Deborah was a prophetess. And we know that the prophets played a major role in the Bible, foretelling and forthtelling. So it was not only about predicting future events, where a few examples were Daniel, who predicted the rise and the fall of several empires in the ancient world, as well as Isaiah predicting that Jesus would be born of a virgin Mary, and Zechariah predicted that the Jewish people from around the world would return to Israel after its restoration as a nation. But their other role was to reveal the words and the will of God in their specific situation. The prophets were to address specific social, political, and religious circumstances in ancient Israel and Judah. They essentially served as God's megaphones. But in order to do this vital work for God, the prophets needed to be in close communion with God. They trusted and obeyed God completely. So Deborah must have been intimately acquainted with God. She was probably instructed in divine knowledge by the immediate inspiration of the Holy Spirit and had gifts of wisdom to which she attained, not in an ordinary way. She heard the words of God and probably saw the visions of God as well. Secondly, 
it appears that she was married, married to a man called Lapidoth. However, who Lapidoth was or what was meant by the name Lapidoth is uncertain. Some biblical scholars think it's a name of a place, that Deborah was a woman of Lapidoth, taking it for the name of her native place or habitation. But there is no evidence of this place. Others think it was her profession prior to becoming a prophetess, where she made wicks for lamps. But most likely, she was married. Thirdly, we see she judged Israel at that time. She was entirely devoted to the service of Israel. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. So the inhabitants of Israel came up to her from all parts of the land to the mount of Ephraim for judgment to have her advice and her counsel in matters of difficulty and to have their cases heard and decided by her. She must have been blessed with gifts of grace and truth. She endeavored to convince the people of their sin, exhorted them to repentance, and administered justice and judgment in all cases that was brought before her. This occurred while the Israelites were under the oppression of Jabin, the king of Canaan. And the children of Israel approached Deborah, asked her to pray to God for them, that he might, that they might be delivered out of the hand of Jabin. And lastly, we see that Deborah is a poet. She pens this beautiful song with Barak in chapter 5, where they pay tribute to God for their victory. Now you can compare these with the songs of Moses in the book of Exodus, and as well as Daniel in the book of Samuel, and of course the Lamb song in Revelations. But Deborah being a woman, was not able to command an army, but she knew who was able to do so. She respected the order of God. So by God's direction, she approached Barak and commanded him to raise an army and engage Jabin's forces that were under Sisera's command. So look with me in verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your, mound, uh, your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Now Barak most likely gained a reputation among the people after encounters with the oppressors, with the enemy. He must have been itching to get at them. And his command from Deborah would have sparked a fire in his belly. However, we see that he lacks faith in order to proceed with the instructions of Deborah. He wanted Deborah to go with him. He says in verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. He wanted someone near who could lean immediately on God. And here we see Deborah's response. She doesn't hesitate to go with him. She remains humble and speaks to him with grace and truth, a mark of a true leader. Simon Sinek, 
A British-American author once said, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. And notice she doesn't act with any arrogance, as she could have told him, do you know who I am? I am the leader God has raised up to deliver Israel, and I am commanding you to go. You don't need me to go into battle with you, do you? She didn't behave like that. She said in verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So at Barak's request, she promises to go along with him into the field of battle. However, she warns him that the glory would not go to him, but that Sisera will be sold into the hand of a woman, a disgrace for him. Deborah predicts that Sisera will be killed by a woman. And as we read further, we see that this prophecy comes true. So there are two wonderful lessons that we can learn from this portion of Scripture that we can apply to our daily lives. We see a major contrast in the characteristics between Deborah and Barak. Firstly, we see the wonderful faith, courage, and strength in Deborah. She trusted and obeyed God in all the things he requested of her. She demonstrated tremendous leadership skills in leading Israel during these difficult and trying circumstances. She never shirked from her responsibilities during that period. She displayed what a Proverbs woman looks like, the woman who fears the Lord, which we see in Proverbs 31, verses 25 to 26. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. As believers, this is what we should be teaching our daughters. I'm a father of a 16-year-old daughter, soon to be 17, a young woman. I certainly do not want her to be a weak person, hiding behind a man to speak on her behalf. I want her to display the marks of a Proverbs woman, to fear the Lord and seek His faith always, to have a deep personal relationship with our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. J.D. Greer, in his study of Judges, tells us that God does not need your ability. He needs your availability. Okay, God equips both men and women for leadership in ministry. He says we have the same gifting, but perform different roles. Let me just repeat that. We have the same gifting, but we perform different roles. There are distinctions in the position and the function in the body of Christ between men and women. And scripture is clear on these different roles that men and women play in the body of Christ. And we need to be obedient to God's word. So sisters, as a woman of God, is God calling you to do something for him today? Do you feel intimidated or ill-equipped? Or do you feel weak and scared? Just look at Deborah. You can be a divinely appointed 
leader and still respect the order of God. Secondly, we see the weak faith of Barak. He did not trust and obey God. He never responded when God told him to go up against Sisera. Remember the verse, She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Abel, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. God needed to send a woman to get him to respond. And even then he wouldn't go. He only went because Deborah was prepared to go. And we see the consequences when men do not act, when men hang back and fail to respond in faith, where Israel was in a state of oppression. And we see time and time again in the Old Testament when men fail to lead and respect the order of God. And J.D. Greer puts it like this, The great temptation of man is not to do evil, but to stand back and do nothing. Let me say that again. The great temptation of man is not to do evil, but to stand back and do nothing. And the consequences of these decisions have been catastrophic throughout the ages. It all begins in the book of Genesis, where we see Adam was standing right next to Eve when she was tempted by the serpent. He failed to act, to step in and take control. He hung back. He wanted to see it all play out. These are evident today, where we see failed marriages, broken families, children who are ill-disciplined and who have no idea of their responsibilities, simply because men do not act and respect God's order. Single mothers having to raise boys because of absent fathers. They fail to lead their, fam lead their families in the way of the Lord. So to the men who are listening today, there is also a message. Are you leading your family the way you ought to be leading them? Do you have a relationship with God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? If not, I urge you to accept the grace he freely offers, to repent of your sin to humbly ask him for forgiveness and to accept the eternal life he offers through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And by coming into his presence, you will find your purpose. Are you missing your God-given purpose for your life today? So I urge you to consider this. I challenge you in this matter. You know, growing up, I loved playing football. I remember my football coach encouraging me, Robert, get stuck in, get your head in the game, get in the fight, stop hanging back. So brothers, I urge you, get involved, stop hanging back, lead your families, lead them well. And if you don't know, then lean, if you don't know how to lead your families, lean not on your understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. However, if you are a believer today and you are listening, listen to the wonderful story that Paul Tripp writes in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He writes of a story about a man called Sam. So he writes this, he says, Sam called me in a panic. It had been an ordinary day. Get up, go to work, and do his job until quitting time. But as he was rushing home, he was approached by a desperate man. 
The man said his life was in a terrible mess. He didn't even know where he was going to sleep that night. Sam could tell he wasn't a seasoned street person. So hoping to be a conduit of help, Sam took him home and called his pastor, me. Paul, he said, I came across this guy who lost his job, had a terrible fight with his wife, and he was thrown out on the street. I thought I would bring him over to your house so that you could give him the help he needs. Is now okay. Before Sam could say anything, I responded, Isn't God's love amazing? God cares about this man and put one of his children in his path. God cares about you and has given you an opportunity to be an instrument in his hands. I am persuaded that God never gets the wrong address and he intends to use you in this man's life. So let me pray for you right now that God will fill your heart with his love and your mind with his wisdom. So he continues, he writes, When I finished praying, Sam said, But I don't think I am able to do this. But I interrupted, I will continue to pray for you tonight, and I will call you in the morning. I am so encouraged by your ministry to this man. I said goodbye and hung up the phone. Then he continues his story and says, For the next several weeks, I stood alongside Sam, determined not to take over for him as he learned to love his desperate friend. He learned how to be a tool God used to encourage change in someone's life. In the process, God changed Sam and his wife in some significant ways as well. And Paul Tripp tells us that embedded in the larger story of redemption is a principle that we must not miss. And so please, I don't want you to miss this this morning. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the lives of others. Let me repeat that again. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the lives of others. So consider some of the people that God used in the Bible. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Peter, Paul, David, the list goes on to fulfill his plan here on earth. We are called to be instruments of that love in the lives of others. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, where the Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians, he says, And he, where he was referring to Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness or deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, which makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So yeah, the Apostle Paul shows us that Christ had the authority and the sovereignty to assign 
spiritual gifts to those he called into his service in his church. He has the power for producing mature, equipped believers, and this is not because of our own efforts, but because of Christ himself. Godly biblical church growth results when every member of the body fully using their spiritual gifts in submission to the Holy Spirit and in cooperation with other believers. Now Paul Tripp says the overall biblical model is this. God transforms people's lives as people bring his word to others. So let's just continue with our narrative story. Let's look at my third point, the defeat of Sisera. So in verses 11 and 12, we see the downfall and the destruction of Sisera, the general of Jabin's army. Now Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and went up to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men at his feet. And of course, Deborah was by his side. Outnumbered and facing Sisera's army, who had 900 chariots, which is equivalent to modern-day tanks. The Israelites only had footmen or foot soldiers and were certainly no match for Sisera's mighty army, who had these horses and chariots. But we see all the odds stacked against them. However, this time, they had the Lord with them. According to the story, we see the forces of nature fought on God's side. And the Canaanite deities who supposedly ruled over nature, were powerless to help, to help against the one and only true living God. So look in verse 15. It says, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. So God sent a huge and mighty storm with hail and rain that flooded the river Kishon. Very unusual for that time, by the way. As a result, the wheels of the chariots became stuck in the mud and they were of no use to them. So God's miracle turned Sisera's main advantage, their chariots, into a disadvantage. As a result, they were destroyed by the Israelites, just as Deborah said. But notice Sisera managed to escape on foot. He quit his chariot and his horses which were his pride and his confidence. He most likely thought that he was safer on foot and was able to disguise his escape that way. And we see he went to the tent of Jehel, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Now remember, we were introduced there in verse 11 to the Kenite, Heber. So he fled for shelter to the tents of the Kenites, having no strong hold or any place of his own to retire to. He was very glad to put himself under the protection of one of these tents. And he chooses Jehel's tent. Perhaps no one would suspect him to be there, or maybe it just happened to be the first one he came across. Anyhow, we see Jehel welcome him and invited him to rest. We then read in graphic detail of how she used a tent peg, a common household tool, and drove it through the temple of Sisera while he lay asleep. She then went to meet Barak and showed him the body of Sisera. And Deborah's prophecy came true. She said in verse 9, Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, 
for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So it was Jael and not Deborah who killed Sisera. So my fourth and final point is victory belongs to God. The story of Deborah isn't mainly about Deborah. The primary and sovereign actor in this narrative is God. From the introduction we see in verses 1 and 2, chapter 4, to the climax in verses 14 to 15, and to the conclusion in 23 to 24, we see the story is all about God and what He is doing. We certainly celebrate the strength of Deborah and the part that she plays, but we should, first and foremost, celebrate the power of our Lord and Saviour. We see the wonderful song that Deborah and Barak sing in chapter 5. We do not have time to read chapter 5 today, but I encourage you to go through it yourselves. Notice how they give God all the glory and the honour for granting them victory over Jabin. They praise him for the help he gave them, acknowledging him to be the source of their victory. Because of their victory over Israel, they were released from their oppressors and entered the time of rest again. So I would like to conclude with the stories of two extraordinary women that I came across. Firstly, Amy Carmichael, who was born in 1867 and died in 1951. Amy suffered with a chronic illness that initially held her back from doing missionary work, first in China when she was rejected because of her health. Then she was forced to cut short her missionary trip to Japan and return home due to the same illness. However, what others would see as disqualifying misfortune, God used her to move to the perfect place to fulfill her deep desire to serve God and others. She initially traveled to Bangalore in India for her health, but eventually began a ministry rescuing girls who were forced into prostitution by religious custom. Not only did she influence and change the lives of so many young women and affect future work that extended to the future boys, but she also inspired other great missionaries like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who in turn went to influence countless others. And secondly, we see Joni Erickson Tarder, who was born in 1949, and who is still with us today. She is known around the world for her testimonial feature film, her conferences, her writing, her music, her radio, her artwork, and her television series. Joni Erickson speaks hope uh, into thousands of lives, not only as an advocate for the disabled community, but as an encouragement and a counsel to many others. A diving accident in 1967 left her, then at the age of 17, a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. After two years of rehab, she overcame with new skills and a fresh determination to help others in similar situation. She founded Joni and Friends in 1979 to provide Christ-centered programs to special needs families, as well as training to churches. Joni also survived breast cancer in 2010, yet keeps a very active ministry schedule. Her lifelong passion is to bring the gospel to the world's one billion people with disabilities. So the lives of these two women 
are examples of us loyalty, courage, and perseverance, their willingness to serve, and their enduring diligence in matters of the gospel urge us to remain steadfast in the faith, much like the example of Deborah today. So remember, Paul Tripp, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the lives of others. So is God calling you today to respond? Listen for his voice. Respond with trust and obedience. And may God get all the glory now and forever. Amen. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word that you have given us today and for the example of these courageous women that have shown us how to be faithful and obedient to your word. We want to thank you for Deborah, Lord, and may we see her life as an example of what it truly is to have faith, trust, and obedience in your word, Lord. Father, we just thank you for this. We praise you, we honor you, we love you, and we ask this all in your Son's precious and holy name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.